gonna I'm gonna start recording and see if it works. Sure. Yeah, no worries. Okay, I think I think it's on. See right. clearly. Yeah. Right on. How you doing, man? Howdy. I'm doing well. How are you? I am beautiful this morning. It's good. Good to be. Right. What are you in uh, California right now? I am. I'm in Los Angeles. So it's a little little early. A little bit. It's not that bad. I'm. I always. I'm an insomniac by nature. So getting up early is like kind of just part of my, you know, yeah. makeup. Do you go to sleep late? Uh, I mean, probably by most people's, you know, yardstick. No, I, I usually go to bed between like ten and eleven. Yeah. Um, but then I'm up at like you know between five and six, and it just it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter how tired I am. It doesn't matter if I'm working or not working. I'm just up at five or six, and wow, you know, it's I I can't explain it. Um, but the dogs love it, you know, because then like they're like, okay, we're up too, and we can go nuts with you. Do you feel well rested? Do you, Do you think you get enough sleep? Um, I think probably I've over the years I've just gotten used to it. So, you know, right. I'm sure it's not the healthiest thing that I could be doing, but uh I guess I've just acclimated to the idea. <laughs> what what do you do uh in your mornings? What do you spend your mornings doing? Well, the first thing obviously is making coffee. You know, that's the most important step. Yep, there you go. And then, you know, when I lived in New York for a long time. And uh, I've been in LA for about three years. And one of the things that I really like is that, you know, when I'm up at 6am here, things are already happening out East, you know, so I can go on, I can listen to the news. I can, you know, go onto websites and I can start to like, you know, get my daily, you know, download of information about what the state of the world is and, you know, which is great, you know, although, you know, days like yesterday, it starts to get a little scary and you're like, Oh my God, what's happening? You know, I'm still wiping the sleep out of my eyes and you know, there's a people storming the Capitol or whatever. So it's, you know, it's got its good and its bad parts. Yeah. That's just remarkable, man. I don't, I don't know if I've spent, if I've taken the time to just sit and really, I don't, I don't really know what to feel. Yeah. It's strange. You know, there's nothing really to compare it to, you know, at least for me, I mean, I've been to, I've been lucky in that my career doing documentary projects, I've gone to some of the sketchier places in the world, you know, and I've gone to places that were undergoing, you know, upheaval or revol- maybe not full on revolution, you know, but like there were, there were problems. And I've, so I've seen that up close before, but it's now, it's, I've always been a visitor, you know, I've always been an observer, you know, of some kind. And now that it's, I mean, I'm still 3,000 miles away from it, so I still feel a little bit, like, removed in, in a sense. But um, it's just odd now to think about, like, oh, this is us. You know, this is us that it's happening to. Yeah, it uh, it disguises itself. I don't know. It's, it's interesting to think about it as a revolution, you know. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. many people would use different terminology. I'm sure, yeah, if we got 10 people on this Zoom call, we'd get 10, 10 different answers about, you know, what's going on and et cetera. So it's, you know, I don't know. It's all craziness. Craziness. What kind of projects are you referring to the places that you've been where you've seen that sort of thing? Did you say documentary? Cause you cut out for a second there. Yeah. Yeah, The places that you said you've, you've been where you've been a part of sort of situations like that. Where, where have you visited? Well, I've been to, um, uh, I, I was in South Africa, you know, that was about 20, 
plus years ago when it was post-apartheid, but it was still, things were very tense and there was a lot going on um, there that was not great. And then we went up into Zimbabwe, which has been full of problems for a long time. And then I spent a lot of time um, in the Middle East, in Syria and Palestine and Israel, Egypt, um, starting in 2003 through, uh, I think the last time I was there was maybe three or four years ago. Um, and seeing different perspectives of everything that's going on in that part of the world um, as well, which obviously has decades of tension and, and conflict and, and things like that. Um, and then, you know, to a lesser extent, I've been to, I was involved with a documentary about oil production in West Africa. So we were in Nigeria, which is not like, is not what a country, at least at the time, this was, I think, in 2000, like 2008 through 2011, I think, was when we shot that project off and on. You know, at the time, it wasn't the place that people thought of as like a, you know, a hotspot. Um, but it's one of those places where like the north and the south of the country don't really get along. And so there's this kind of like ongoing tension and there's, you know, military pr presence everywhere and checkpoints and all of that kind of stuff. And so even though that didn't, that you, I wouldn't put that in like the insurrection category, you know, there was just always a lot of tension in the air when we were over there. What do you, what do you feel like you've learned from those experiences? Um, well, I mean, it gives you a lot of perspective just about like where we are, you know, and I don't, I'm not talking about what happened yesterday in DC. I'm just talking about kind of in general, you know, the fact that, you know, we're, uh, I, speaking for me, I mean, personally, you know, that you kind of start to take things for granted, you know, what we have available to us. And it gives you a perspective on how the rest of the world perceives certain things, you know, like, uh, democracy and civic duty and, all of this, you know, they're, they just have a different experience than we do. And so they're, even though it, a lot of what they do and, and how they interact is different from what we do and how we interact, um, it doesn't make their perspective any less valid because they've had a life experience that's so different from ours, you know? So it's, it's kind of like just expanded my worldview in, in, uh, in ways that it's, it's really hard to describe, honestly, just because it's kind of like, it's not like I went there with, you know, I went there with documentary projects or on my own to do whatever. And so it wasn't like there was an agenda. I wasn't there as a journalist, like trying to tell a specific story. We were there to, you know, encompass like a larger perspective. And so that made it, uh, I don't know, eye-opening. Do you, do you find when you're doing documentary style filming that, I mean, obviously it's from your perspective, but do you try to pursue that sort of unbiased perspective that's more just observing without judgment, just trying to capture as much of what's really happening rather than painting certain scenes or painting certain uh, narratives, if that makes sense. I, that's a good question. You know, it, I, and I think it's pretty hard to answer. Um, actually, the director of that oil documentary that I just mentioned, she and I would talk about this a lot. And she had her point of view was that there's no such thing as a fully objective journalism or documentary filmmaking that you always bring some, whether you're aware of it or not, you always bring some, you know, perspective or, or point of view or, 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 uh, you know, bias, I guess is the strongest word for it to whatever you're doing. Like this, it's inescapable in a way. And I think that I, 
don't know that I 100% agree, but I certainly don't 100% disagree with that idea. Um, so it's, I can't say that I, on many or any of the projects, documentary projects that I've been involved with that I've gone in with like a, you know, a, 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 a predetermined, you know, idea about like what I wanted to do. I think documentaries, you kind of have to like keep your mind open to like go with the flow and see where the story takes you because anytime in my experience, anytime you have a preconception about what you want the story to be, it's always going to take you, you know, on a right, on a hard right turn or a hard left turn or whatever turn. Um, so you have to be open to that. Um, but I think it would be disingenuous to say that I came with like completely like no bias whatsoever. Although it would be hard for me to define what that bias was. It's just, I think in some ways I'm agreeing with the director of the oil documentary that it's almost impossible not to. Yeah. It reminds me of a quote that I actually came across yesterday and it, it was something like, um, no matter how detailed our plans are, what actually happens always proves to be more interesting. And I, I yeah, think yeah. I like, think that's a pretty good way to, uh, express what I was trying to say about mm -hmm. documentary filmmaking and being open-minded about it, you know, and that, you know, it's the, 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 the journey is going to be much more interesting if you're going with the flow of the water and not trying to fight the current, you know, and say like, well, I want to tell specifically this story, you know, so like, Oh my God, well, this is now happening. Then we have to now do this. And that's been proved. I mean, proven true on every documentary project that I've been a part of. It's always started off as one thing, and it's moved in one direction, whether it's gone a little bit or a lot, you know, away from that idea, it's always moved at least, a, at least something, at least some amount. Those are, yeah, those are the best documentaries I've experienced is when it's not like, cause like sometimes, you know, the title of the film is going to tell you, this is what the content is searching for. Mm -hmm. And when you're, when you got something loose, I'm thinking maybe like, I don't know, like gray gardens, if you're familiar with that, something where they're just like, we have these really, idiosyncratic people and we're just going to just let them do whatever it is that they do right it's it's amazing that it, it always finds a way like it always finds a way where you're like wow that's pretty funky people are yeah. people are interesting <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I spent the morning with uh your avet brothers documentary oh fun i thought that was really interesting in that it was sort of an like an introduction to the band and a sort of like origin story but it was also like a here's the process of making this album so it felt like two two of those sorts of documentaries coming into one and it felt really fluid because, you know, a lot of documentaries will be like, they grew up here. This is where they got their big break. These are the venues they started working with, you know, you know, and they kind of do that. They talk about like the people that came into their lives at certain points, the band members, the venues they were playing, but it all felt really like they just brought it up on their own. That's what it felt like. So I'm, I'm curious how that process was for you making that documentary, how structured it was or how much it was kind of like, these are just some cool guys making music. Let's capture it. It was, it was more of the latter. It was more of these are some cool guys and let's capture it. I, to be honest, I had no idea who the Avid brothers were when I started that documentary. And one of the first things we shot was them playing Madison Square Garden or, or maybe it was the Barclay Center. I'm sorry. Um, and, you know, it's weird to be like, who are these people? They're, they sold out, you know, a 15,000 seat arena or whatever it is. Um, so it was, it was an interesting plunge to take, but it, that movie, 
very much started out as just like, let's just hang around with these guys and let's see what happens. Um, and they were recording a new album. That was the catalyst of it. So we knew we were going to do that. And we knew there was going to be like some tour element and showing what an Avid Brothers show is like, you know, because they're energetic and they, you know, they, they kind of, you know, I find it hard to describe what genre they're in because I think they cover so many genres. And I think the live shows demonstrate that more than the recorded music. Mm -hmm. And then as we were just talking about, like we just kind of like let the, you know, let the, the, the current take us where it went. And I remember talking with Mike Bonfiglio, who's the director of that documentary. And he was saying, I'm wondering if the story is just these guys. You know, it's just that this, it's not like um, that Metallica documentary, some kind of monster where it's like, oh, here they're, the band is going to therapy. <laughs> and the story is the band going through therapy, you know, or some, or, and, and still being kind of like an overview of who the band is. And we didn't really have that, you know, so it kind of became like, let's look at their process. And I love the creative process. I love documenting it. I love being around it, you know, no matter who's doing it. So that is automatically interesting to me. Um, and, uh, then we kind of just, like I said, we just let the current take us where, where, where it went but to your point about, um, how, how broad a view a documentary wants to take on, um, anything, you know, I've always felt like the best documentaries aren't the ones that try and tell the whole story. Like they were born on this day and then they died on this day and we're going to try and tell everything in between. Yeah. It's more trying to say, here's a moment in their life. And through that moment, um, we are going to try and tell like who, like the entire story of who they are. So of course, you know, the Avid brothers, they're not Beyonce. Like they're not <laughs> as they're not that level of famous. So we had to address like where they came from and all of those things. But I think it what it did become a little bit more like them just kind of very briefly relating that and then just getting back into, you know, today or 2016 or whenever we shot it, you know, and, and being with them in the studio and seeing how they interact and how they, how they create. Yeah. And something like the scene where they're uh, like just cutting wood with their father, like how did yeah. like that come to fruition? that just things like that just come from hanging out you know and i think that's one of the keys to at least when you're talking about a project that is of uh, like like that where you're trying to um we're trying to show like who these people are you know um less of a kind of like a you know a, a story about like the financial crisis you know where you're, you're trying to get a certain point across right um but more like you know it's 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 world building you know uh, in, in a sense. And so, you know, it's just scheduling time where you say like, Hey, Scott and Seth, when are you guys going to be back home in North Carolina? And can we hang out with you for three days, five days, whatever it is. And whatever happens, we'll just be around for it. And that's what happened on that shoot was just, you know, we didn't call their dad and say, Hey, do you want to go chop some wood with the boys <laughs> and we'll make a scene out of it. Yeah. It was more like we're there. And they said, Hey, there's, you know, we have to, it's, late fall, we got to chop wood, blah, blah, blah. So they're like, great, let's film that. And let's see what happens, you know? And it ended up being a, you know, a, a, another really good window into who they are just by watching, not because of the wood, but yeah. just watching how they interact with each other, the two brothers and their dad. Um, and 
beyond being like a fun scene for the movie, it was instructive for us for moving forward with, you know, filming the rest of the documentary. Mm-hmm. For sure. And you just did a, a Bon Jovi something recently, right? Another- I did, um, which was a very different experience. Yeah. Um, I have no what that is or anything about it. So I'd love to hear like what virtual sort of like what's different about that and what what even that was. Well, the 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 genesis of that was that John Bon Jovi had recorded an album that kind of I think he finished it, finished it um, towards the end of 2019. And it was about the kind of like the 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 moment, you know, in America, whether that's about politics, whether that's about Black Lives Matter or whatever, it was his, he was like, I want to comment on this. And then he had scheduled a big John Bon Jovi size tour for 2020 to support the album. I think the album was supposed to come out in the spring at some point. Then, you know, in March, the pandemic hits and John decides, I guess two things. One, he decides, well, if I'm going to try and make an album about the moment and I don't address the pandemic in some capacity, then it doesn't feel right. So he went back and he recorded some new songs that had to do with 2020 and the new things that were happening. Um, but then he knew also that his tour was just going away, uh, yeah. that there was no way he was going to be able to pull it off. So they pushed the release date of the album to the fall and he decided he canceled his tour and he decided that if he can't tour, he wanted to give something, you know, for the fans to enjoy. So why not, um, do kind of like a virtual concert that he can just put online and everyone can watch it. And it's really about the new album and it'll kind of support the new album for when it comes out. And then he had gotten an opportunity to do another live event with another, with a, uh, a an, an internet radio company. And he said, Hey, well, as long as I'm here, can I just basically rent everything from you guys for one more day and do my own thing? That's not about like Bon Jovi, but it's more about this album 2020 that I, that is coming out and it'll be like the thing. And so that's how we got involved is he said, okay, so I want to do this. And then um, Alex Horwitz, who is somebody I know from other documentary projects in the past, um, he called me and he said, Hey, John Bon Jovi reached out this and that. And so would you want to fly to Nashville? Um, And I was like, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. See, that was in person then, but it was for a virtual. It was in person for us, um, you know, and it was, there was a lot to figure out in terms of uh, the COVID of it all, you know, yeah. even though there wasn't an audience, there was no audience whatsoever. Um, there was just the band, the crew, the documentary crew. Um, and then there was like the, the stage crew. And when um, did you film this? I'm sorry? When did you film this? This was in August. Oh. Um and uh, it was from the very beginning, it was all, all of the safety protocols were taken very seriously. And it became part of the uh, presentation of not just uh, the uh, documentary portion, but even the concert portion of it. It's like, we're in this weird world now. And now we have masks and oh, okay, we're gonna take them off and we're gonna perform for you and et cetera. But it just was like, it was part of the story. Um, yeah. It, yeah. It's bizarre. It's I've I've talked a lot with recent guests about how films themselves are changing because of the protocol. Mm-hmm. Like you know, products are going to look different because of the like a lot of uh, TV shows don't have as much extras in the background or like little things like that. Yeah, 
what what else have you been doing like this year? Like, did your did your kind of workflow stop abruptly when everybody else's did? Or oh yeah, I mean, in mid March, I had a movie lined up that we were supposed to start shooting in. I had just wrapped a TV show on February twenty eighth. Flew back to LA, you know, and then I had a few weeks off, and then I was going to start prepping this movie that I was going to shoot in May, and I was like, oh, everything's perfect. And two weeks later, you know, pandemic hits, and the movie. Um, was eventually pushed to uh, this year. And so we're going to try and shoot it in May of this year. So, you know, nothing's going on. LA is shut down. Everyone's still trying to figure everything out. And then in about May, um, late May, early June, I started to get calls from uh, documentary people saying, well, we've been doing this thing. We're trying to wrap it up. We just have a few more days, you know, and it's just interviews. And we figured out these ways to work where it was literally just me and the person being interviewed. And then everybody else who was involved would just dial in on zoom. And that was it. Wow. And it was really low fi and very like by the skin of our teeth, but you know, it was a way to just, you know, get these last little bits for a few documentary projects going. Mm -hmm. And then about like mid to late summer, about the time when I did the Bon Jovi thing, you know, the unions had kind of figured out their protocols and SAG had figured out their protocols and, the state and LA County, like they had figured out what their restrictions were and, and how things could happen. And so then production started to go, really get going a little bit more. So I shot a pilot in October, which is my first like real experience with like a hundred person crew, you know, and we're on location, we're on a stage and it was more like proper production, um, but in the environment of COVID, um, which was, a learning experience, you know, and it's, I think the thing that I learned the most um, was that there's an inherent lack of safety from a COVID-19 perspective in production. You know, when you're talking about like, there's a proximity thing, right. you know, people are touching things, you know, if, if the, if you need to get the dolly up a flight of stairs, that takes six people to do that. Um, and so these are all things that you have to take into account. So on that particular pilot, they made the pandemic a small part of the story. It wasn't like a huge thing. It was just more like they just said like, okay, this will take place in pandemic times. We're not gonna, we're not going to um, showcase it, but we're just gonna say like, oh, it's there. When people are walking outside, they'll have a mask on and that's it. Um, and that was their solution to it. Mm -hmm. um, but from a practical perspective, you know, it just takes a lot of, it takes a lot of, uh, you know, not resilience. What's the word I'm looking for? It takes a lot of, I guess, commitment to whatever it, whatever it's going to take to make it as safe as possible for everybody who's there. And that barometer is different for every person. You know, on that pilot, three people left because they just felt unsafe. Not because we weren't doing all of the stuff, you know, we had a whole COVID team. We had a, everyone got their temperature taken before they went on, went on set yeah. multiple times throughout the day. I was tested three times a week as well as everybody else who was like in kind of like the shooting crew, you know, so, and there were people who walked around and be like, you guys got to spread apart. Here's some hand sanitizer, like blah, blah, blah. So we were taking it very seriously, but you know, for some people there's just kind of, it's just still there's a level of comfort that doesn't exist. And I respect that, you know, and I'm not gonna, I don't want anyone to be in a position where they don't feel 100% comfortable. 
Has it or, or they don't feel like they couldn't make it 100% comfortable. Mm -hmm. Has it affected your headspace at all? Like when you're going to do what it is that you do, does the general environment feel like a little off or do the precautions give you enough of a sort of comfort blanket that you can work on? I think that I ended up, um, you know, at a certain point you're kind of jump into autopilot yeah. um, and you go back. I mean, we've all been doing this for so long and we work on so many projects. We've developed these shortcuts and shorthands and um, you, you fall back on that very easily and very quickly. And so the trick for me was to constantly just remind myself, like I can't go and like tweak the props on the table like I normally would um, because not because anyone's going to get mad that I touch the props, but because it's unsafe because then the actors are going to come in and they're going to touch the props. And so, you know, it was like kind of like catching myself like, wait, that's not something I can do, you know? And the same thing was true of, you know, a lot of different things. I love operating and on a typical um, production even, or I'm sorry, on a, on a typical production, one where we're doing like handheld work because I love doing handheld work. You know, I would just maybe like borrow the camera from one of the operators for a couple takes or a couple scenes just because I want to get in there you know, and I love doing it and it's, and it's a lot of fun and very rewarding, but that's just not a thing you can do in a COVID safe environment. So you have to kind of dial back those impulses and say, okay, we're just going to do it like very above board, like as much as possible and just keep track of ourselves as much as possible. Do you think that it's been positive in any way that it's like cut out some of the fat of like potentially like those steps that you said where maybe you'd go tweak something on the set, like, there's less happening. So does, do you think that that affects the actual work itself in some sort of cleaner way? Um, I mean, well, I mean, in, from the perspective of trying to work in a pandemic, yes. Um, I think from, but just in general, no, basically it all, it's, it's a huge cost and it's a huge time suck, you know, and that's, there's really no way around that. Um, but it's what's required, you know, so it's positive in that, with these precautions and with this mindset, we're making as many people as possible feel comfortable with what we're trying to do. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's but it, I guess if, if I was thinking about the long-term impacts, like say once in two years or so when the pandemic is behind us, I think there will be some, yeah, um, I think there will be some long-term effects that are positive you yeah. know just in terms of like simple things like people washing their hands more often you yeah. know is not a bad thing you know and i wouldn't be surprised if you see people just decide like well when i'm at work or when i'm in an environment that i'm not 100 percent, you know knowing what's going on you know maybe i'm wearing a mask you know and that's just a thing that people will do and it won't be you know, last year, if somebody did that, that would be a little bit weird. You know, people would be like, why are you wearing a mask? But now from now on, people probably won't say that, you know, they'll say, okay, well, I get it while you're wearing a mask. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of when it's going to, whatever go back to normal means, obviously that's not going to happen because things change rapidly, but right. Yeah. Like myself, I can't picture a time where like, I'm, it's always better to be safe, you know, than. yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's interesting. I was listening to an interview with, uh, Dr. Fauci on the radio this morning um, during my, you know, when I got up so early and um, he was saying, you know, we, we they want to get to the point where they're 
they're giving out a million vaccines a day, wow. which is a huge, huge number. Yeah. But I think it's also like they need to vaccinate, I think, at least 180 million people in America for us to get to that point where, you know, it starts to like actually impact, you know, the herd, uh, whatever term <laughs> it is, herd immunity, and then more people vaccinated. But a million a day, 180 million people, that's still six months. You know, so even starting, if it started today, yeah, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't cross that threshold until the middle of the summer. Um, and I can't imagine that it's going to be that efficient. Yeah. Um, so I think we're talking about, I mean, the virus, I think will be with us for a while, but I think what's going to happen is that as the vaccines and such are rolled out, people are just going to get better at dealing with the virus and working in conditions, you know, that are virus safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think it's going to really impact pr- the amount of production that's happening. I think actually people are dying to get back into production, you know, not just the crew people, but studios and networks and platforms and et cetera. Um, so I think, I think the amount of work is going to grow. Um, it's just going to be, well, you know, we might have a little bit less time. So we have to think about that for how we're going to do it. We might have a little less money because we got to put money towards the, safety protocols and PPE and whatever. So, you know, it's our, our, our show that was this big is now this big. And now we have to make it work and figure that out and still be happy with everything that we're doing. So that's going to be, I think the, the key. Yeah. Are are you static right now? Are there, are people not doing many projects at the moment? It's, it feels like right now uh, it's, it's in a little, a, a slight limbo. There was a lot going on in the fall and in the early winter. Um, and then around the holidays, I think everyone took a little step back. And then now I'm not sure if you heard, but you know, LA is um, asking productions to shut down for two weeks. I did not hear that. Yeah, there, it's, uh, the, the city is basically saying, you know, we're just trying to reduce the number of infection vectors or whatever you call them um, and sets are potential vectors. So, you know, just a, it's, a, it's, not, a, um, it's not a rule. You know, it's, they're asking for people to just, you know, do it on their own. Um, so I think people are taking a little bit of a step back, but then let's say late mid to late February, uh, the floodgates are going to open, you know, and everyone's going to be like, we want to get back. We want to get back to work. Not like selfishly, but just like, let's, let's do this. We know how to do it and let's do it in a safe and and good way. Mm Mm-hmm. How how have you exercised the creative aspect of your life not being able to work as regularly? Or is, is that something that's important to you to create in some sort of way, whether it's writing or? Yeah, I mean, well, what I did, um, I mean, I guess I spent a lot of time, at least maybe talking about the first half of the pandemic, maybe in a little bit of denial about how long it was going to be going on, mm-hmm. you know, because so like that movie that I mentioned, that was going to happen in May of last year, they pushed to June, then they pushed to July, then they pushed to August, and then they pushed to this year. You know, they finally said, yeah, forget it. Let's just go a, a big amount. So I was kind of always like, uh, at any moment, like we're going to get the green light and, you know, everything will be fine. And so then when I finally kind of said, okay, I mean, ironically, that was when I started working again. It just wasn't on that movie. That's when other projects started to say like, oh, okay, we figured out ways to do it safely and et cetera. And so when I kind of determined like, okay, 
I'm not, I have time to like do my own projects. What I decided to do was learn as much as possible about uh, the color grading stage of the process and, uh, you know, getting under the hood on camera color spaces and color transforms and um, building looks and LUTs and what have yous and all of that kind of stuff. And I certainly wouldn't say that I understand it all now, <laughs> but I have a better understanding, you know, as a cinematographer, yeah. I have a better understanding than I did before the pandemic. So that was where I put the majority of my creative energy was just an education and just trying to educate myself into number one, like, you know, how can I be better at that? But also number two, like, what are the ways to improve um, uh, taking advantage of that step in the process? You know, because it's, it's always fun. And I've, I've spent a lot of time in color correction rooms. Um, but I think I kind of like would sit back and just talk about like bigger ideas like, oh, this should be like smoky or this should be blue or this should be con whatever dark. And I'd let the colorist deal with all the under the hood stuff. Mm -hmm. But now I'm not saying that I'm a colorist. I'm not a color scientist. But now I feel like I can express what I'm looking for from with from them a little bit more clearly yeah. in terms of like, here's what I want to go for. And maybe we can do this. and Maybe we can do this. And I still expect that person the colorist, whoever it is, to offer their input and have some ownership of the look of the project. You know, that's important to me. Um, but I just like the idea that I can have a more fluid communication with them about all of the options and the and ideas and, and et cetera. Can you give me an example of something that you could like look at and ex explain with more specificity now that you've kind of thought about it and did some more research? Well, I mean, the, uh, speaking in a big way, it's really, I mean, I guess I have just a, an understanding of how all this, pardon my French, but how all this shit works, <laughs> you know, which again, before I would just, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of it were unimportant to me. I just knew that like, okay, if I'm shooting on the Alexa and I'm doing this and I do this and we output to this, you know, some math happens in the middle, but basically I just need to get from A to B. But now I know that like, okay, this is what the airy color space in log looks like, uh -huh. you know, mathematically. And I know this is what we want it to look like, you know, when it comes out, you know, not in terms of the, the creative look, but in terms of like making sure that we're getting all of the dynamic range and all of the quality that we want, you know, that here are the two ends of it. And in the middle, now I know a little bit better how to manipulate these things so that we're getting the creative look that we want but not undermining that final output so that we don't have like weird contrast or like some colors are more saturated than other colors or we're getting something that feels a little thin or anything like that, which I never would have gone for in the past, but I would have just said to the colorist, oh, this looks a little thin. You know, can you make it look less thin? <laughs> and they would say, well, we, what do you mean? I go, well, I don't know, but now I know, you know, and I can say to them like, oh, okay, you know, we're losing saturation in this part of the image alone. So let's get into there and let's figure that out, you know, or I want to make it a little bit less, um, you know, the way that the, 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 the colors are reacting as we get into the higher saturation levels, higher luminance levels, we need to moderate that a little bit to make it feel a little bit more organic and a little bit less electronic. Um, and so these are things that I can do. I mean, maybe these aren't good examples, but these are things that I just feel like I have a better understanding of right good. now. That it's really good. Months ago. <laughs>
How, do you think that'll affect your shooting at all, the way that you shoot? Oh, I definitely will. Um, if, and at the very least, it'll just give me a greater sense of confidence about where I'm going to be um, with the final image. Yeah. Um, and, you know, every DP, you know, at some point in the process is just going to rely on a little bit of trickery because, oh, the sun isn't where I wanted it to be or the sun left, you know, in the middle of the scene. And so we got to figure some stuff out. And so, you know, when you go to the video village and you're talking to the executives and the director and you're saying, this is going to look right, but I'm shooting it this way for yeah. a technical reason to give myself some stuff to work with that, you know, I just, I'll have more confidence in having those conversations, you know, being like, this is all good. Don't worry about it. We're going to fix it later. Um, and then I'm talking about in the situations where you're like, oh, something happened that we can't control, you know, but in the situations that you can control, you know, 98% of the time where you're basically in command of like how everything is working, then I know like, oh, okay, I can, if I put a little bit more light here, a little bit less, little less light here, I know where these things are going to go and I'm just going to get a better overall image. I'm just going to be happier with it when all is said and done. Have, have you always viewed your job or your active creation as a means of, like, do you always push yourself to try to do something different or something a little more progressive or see it as a, as a learning experience? Well, I, I'd like to think so. Um, although I don't, you know, I don't, I guess it depends, you know, I, um, you know, in, in documentaries, it's a little bit easier to track your kind of creative ambitions, you know, where you might think about like, you know, how, how, uh, how, how, how you want to shoot certain things in a verite environment, you know, can there's a, there's a huge range in that or how you want to shoot something where you're establishing like, oh, we're in this space and this is a true crime story, but this is a, you know, a music store or whatever. And so there are different ways that you can kind of push yourself that I think are a little bit more obvious, like, you know, and, and they might be technology driven, like, oh, now we can bring a drone in. Like a drone does not cost prohibitive, you know, for a documentary anymore. And that means that we can shoot things in different ways. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's easy to kind of track that. With scripted stuff, I tend to be a, a naturalist about the approach, unless the script is, calls for something fantastical. Um, and so every time I've tried to push myself out of that naturalistic environment for a natural story, again, not a fantastical, not stranger things, you know, but just something that's a little bit more in the real world, I end up being a little bit unhappy with the results. Hmm. Um, and so I always kind of like end up dialing back, uh, that kind of stretch, but what I do try and do is be more ambitious in how I'm telling the story, you know, so it, whether that's, you know, trying to come up with some more sophisticated way of shooting it, you know, using different pieces of gear or whatever, or just being a little bit more dialed in with what the lighting is, or a little bit more dialed in with how the visuals are re representing the story. You know, that's kind of like how I, that's, that's a little bit more where I put my ambition is to try and like take, and like, I know that I like work in this world, you know, um, and let me just kind of like trying to ratchet up a little more each time. So I'm always just getting a little bit closer to what I have in my head. Cause I think, I can't remember who said it. Some DP, some famous DP one time said like, you know, this all is about just trying to get 
what's in your head on screen and you never quite get there. Sometimes you get close, but you never quite get there. And so I just, I think my ambition is just trying to get a little bit closer each time to what I have in my head. Beautiful, man. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we're at about time. Oh, okay. It's been a, it's been a wonderful time chatting with you. Thank you. No, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Hopefully our paths will cross in the future once uh, the world opens back up. Oh yeah. Are you, uh, are you also LA based? I'm in Michigan right now. I plan oh, Michigan. LA shortly though. Oh, actually, I don't know. Shortly. <laughs> it's in, it's in the vision, but uh, uh-huh. it's been, it's been put on hold a little bit due to the circumstances, but it's- I lived in Ann Arbor from ages two to nine. Wow. That's crazy. Yeah. That's I'm Ypsilanti. Ann Arbor is like my, the spot. So that's- yeah. Back when I, I mean, that was, you know, ages ago, but they were talking about Ypsilanti and Ann Arbor, like joining and becoming like one super town because they were, I don't know what the, you know, rationale was or anything like that, but I think they were talking, we're, it's going to be Ipsy Arbor uh, is going to be this new like mega town. Um, but I guess it obviously didn't happen. There's, there's definitely a distinct, there's a, there's a section of road where it's like, you're in Ann Arbor now, the lights, mm-hmm. get, the buildings get taller, the <laughs> things happen. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's cool. Great. Yeah. Um, I, I went back. When was this? Like five years ago, I was doing a shoot somewhere in Michigan and we were driving through Ann Arbor and we went and look at like the house where, where I lived. And I was like, Oh my God. Wow. It was, it's just weird to see things that you have. Cause I hadn't seen it since I was nine, you yeah. know, and like certain things like seem huge, but then when you're an adult, you're like, that wasn't huge <laughs> at all. <laughs> How'd you um, get there? I'm sorry. How would you end up there for like a short period of time? Well, my dad is or was um, in cancer research. And so when I was born, he was working at Dartmouth University. And so I was born in New Hampshire. And mm-hmm. then he got a job in Detroit um, at the, oh, I can't remember the name of the facility, but it was something that had to do with cancer research. And then he got a job in Denver when I was nine, so we moved all, de- we all moved to Denver. He moved in, de- he worked in Denver at another cancer facility. And now he teaches at Rutgers University. Huh. Um, so he's, he's been all over the map. So we basically traveled with him. Wow. Yeah. That's cool, man. All right. Well, yeah, I definitely love to, to talk about your Ann Arbor adventures more in the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What's that famous sandwich place? I, uh, we went to it, uh, there's probably more than one. It's probably a, it's an unfair question. Cafe I like. <laughs> I can tell you that. There's a yeah. cafe, but I don't know. All right, well, but thank you. This is, this is really fun. Of course, man. I'll, I'll keep in touch and I'll let you know when it's up and all that. Thank you again. That's great. Thanks again. Take care of yourself.